John 7, 37 and 53. And Jesus was at the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. I have no idea. It's John 7, 37 to 53. There you go. And before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, we thank you for the rain that you have sent and that you are continuing to send. Lord, you have heard our prayers, and for that, we give you thanks. And you have provided what we need and continue to do so and continue to um, display your care for your creation. For that, we give you praise. You are worthy of praise. You do the things that we cannot do. You display uh, your power every day. And we so often uh, take that for granted or miss it entirely. But Lord, you are worthy of praise. And you have done amazing things and you continue to do amazing things. And you have promised to do amazing things in the future. And we know that you can be trusted to do them. Lord, as we approach your word this morning, we ask that um, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us minds to understand. Lord, that most of all, that by your spirit, you would give us hearts that can take this message in, that you would give us a change of heart that we would be continually transformed into the likeness of your Son by your Word and by your Spirit. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John 7, starting in verse 37, it says, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, Streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Then each went to his own home. Then our sermon text from 2 Corinthians, which conclude our series through 2 Corinthians, um, where we've been mainly looking at chapters 4 and 5, though we did a bit out of the beginning 
And now here's one section from the end um, that helps tie it all together. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. Page 175. Page 175. And uh, in this section, Paul writes, I must go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that. But I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, this particular passage is one that is distinctively Christian, for one thing. But one that is really flies in the face of, the, of any sort of secular worldview. Paul makes a case against boasting... He talks about supernatural revelations, and he also talks about how it's okay, and in fact to even be encouraged, to boast about your own weaknesses. Now, imagine, if you will, that you are giving advice to uh, a high school graduate or someone just coming out of college, and they are getting ready to fill out a, a, make their resume out to send out to potential employers. What are you going to tell them to put on the resume? Strengths? Yes. And maybe downplay the weaknesses. Those are not the things that we're going to be broadcasting here. So I want everybody to see how wonderful you are. And Paul says, you know what? Maybe what you ought to do is just say how horrible you are. Right? <laughs> this is not the message we get from the world. Tell everybody how bad you are. No. It's tell everybody how wonderful you are and be upset if they don't recognize it because you're wonderful and you're special. Um, and while it's true that you're very special in God's sight, there's still a sense in which that's not what we brag about. Because we're not special in God's sight because we deserve it. We're special in God's sight because he made us. And so the praise goes to him and not to us. Paul has this little concluding 
line where he says, that's why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. Have you ever found yourself, as you are looking forward to the coming day or week or something, where you're thinking to yourself, I really hope that tomorrow is very difficult. I really hope that tomorrow I'm going to face persecution. I really hope that tomorrow people will insult me to my face, or maybe I will find out people have been stabbing me behind the back. I really hope that's what's going on tomorrow. That's, that's what I look forward to. I really hope that I face hardships. No, that's not what we hope for, is it? In fact, we're all the time praying that those things don't happen. Saying, God, tomorrow, you know, today was rough. Make tomorrow better. (laughs) I don't want to face difficulties and hardships and insults, and I don't want to have to uh, deal with any of my weaknesses anymore. I want you to take those away too. And yet Paul says, those are the very things he delights in. In weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. Why? Why in the world is Paul delighting in these things that we all want so much to avoid? And it has to do with what he has learned about himself and about Jesus. He has experienced amazingly great revelations. Things I would venture to guess we have not experienced. Where he describes this whole confusing scenario of someone 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And he goes through this whole thing. And by the end of it, we say, I don't even know what you're talking about, Paul. That is, that is some pretty confusing business. And yet... All he's saying is, God has showed me some amazing things. In fact, things that are so amazing, I can't even tell you about them. But that's okay, because I don't need to tell you about those. Because the point of God showing these to me was not that then you would think that I am somehow special. In fact, I might get to thinking that way if it were not for this thorn in the flesh. I might start thinking, you know, God showed me things he hasn't showed other people, so that must mean I'm something extraordinary. And he says, but no, to keep me from becoming conceited, there was giving me, giving me a thorn in my flesh. There had been a lot of discussion, a lot of talk, a lot of writing as to what Paul's thorn in the flesh is, and, or what it, what it was, um, and there have been a lot of guesses. That maybe his thorn in the flesh was some sort of uh, a spiritual issue, or maybe it was some sort of a temptation that he was facing, or maybe there was some sort of physical ailment that he had, or maybe it was just his persecutions he was facing on an ongoing basis. Nobody knows. And while some people still really want to know what exactly it was, I think it's really good there are others and I agree with them who think it's really good that he doesn't say exactly what it is for this reason if Paul said there was given me this thorn in the flesh which was this issue then all of us who don't have that issue go oh well that's how God handled that issue but I have other ones 
But when he just describes in kind of general terms, there was this thorn in my flesh, we all go, oh yeah, I got one of those too. I don't know if it's the same one as his, but I got one of those. And he pleads that God will take it away from him. Whatever it is, it is unpleasant. And you may have found yourself in a situation that is very unpleasant, that you have prayed and prayed that God would take it away from you. And he hasn't. And the temptation, when God has not taken away what is hurting you, is to think to yourself, then maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he doesn't really hear. And yet Paul says, no, I pleaded with God three times. But he didn't take it away. Instead, he said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. You don't need this to go away. What you need is me in the midst of it. I find it interesting that the word for thorn is actually the same word for either a stake or a splinter. And I I have to wonder, I don't know for sure, but I do have to wonder if Paul is kind of making a play on that word in the sense of uh, taking a look at whatever it was he was facing, the difficulty in his life, whatever it was, and saying, you know, it's not the same as Jesus' cross. This is just like a little splinter. But it connects me to the cross. It's that overflow of Jesus' sufferings into our lives. And if there was ever a place where we see God's power made perfect in weakness, it's at the cross. Where right at the point where Jesus looks like he has no power at all is the very moment when he's defeating all of evil and sin and death. The greatest power we've ever seen on earth was at the moment that looked like the greatest weakness. And so when Paul is looking at this difficulty he's facing in his life, whatever it was, I have to wonder if there's a reason he just referred to it in a general term as this thorn or splinter or stake as a connection to Jesus and the cross. Alistair Begg has the uh, quote that he said about this passage where he said, you know, if dependence is the objective, then weakness is an advantage. If dependence is the objective, then weakness is an advantage. And if you look back through the all of human history, starting back with Adam and Eve in the garden, what was it they were supposed to do? They were supposed to walk with God, enjoy Him in the garden, live in obedience with Him, and depending on Him for everything they had. And what did they do instead? They pulled away from what God said, and they trusted in their own wisdom, and their own strength, and their own abilities instead of in God. And we've had the problems ever since. And, of course, we always have to be reminded that before we're too quick to just blame them and say, yeah, well, if they hadn't done everything, I would have gotten it right. Well, we've all done the exact same thing. Maybe not with fruit, but... (laughs) It does seem strange, though. You... I think maybe today, if that were to happen, instead of God tempting us with fruit, it would be like Krispy Kreme donuts or something. I don't know. I know. Who can resist? I don't know. Anyway. (laughs) But the, uh, 
But the issue was not the fruit. It was not the donuts. Uh, the issue is whether or not we're going to depend on God and trust him or depend on our own wisdom and our own strength to determine what's right and wrong and do for ourselves. Now, today is Pentecost. You may have noticed I got a little more red in the room today. That is the color of, of Pentecost as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is the day where we celebrate God pouring out his spirit upon the church. Not only in a past tense way, like, well, that happened once upon a time, but that doesn't happen anymore. No, that was the beginning day, and it has been going on ever since, even until today, God pouring out his spirit on his people. Now, we have talked about this before. We're going to talk about it again. When we were going through the entire book of Mark, this whole last year, and looking at Jesus and the things he did and the things that he said and the things people did to him and said about him, one of the things that we noticed over and over again is even though he came as the savior of the world, he came uh, as the servant, but also as the king, Anytime people would recognize him and say, you are the son of God, you are the Christ, he, would, he wouldn't correct them, but he would say, okay, don't tell anybody. And we just kept saying that over and over, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. And th- those seem like good Presbyterian verses, where we go to those verses and go, see, Jesus doesn't want us to tell anybody about it. But that was true for a time, and that time has passed. Jesus didn't want anybody to tell about him before he went to the cross. Lest we get the message confused, unless we preach, a power, uh, preach the power of triumphalism that doesn't go through weakness. That doesn't get exercised in pain and suffering. Jesus' message, though, was that he was not only the king, but also the suffering servant. The one who would give his life as a ransom for many. And that it was through that weakness, through that self-sacrifice, that the strength and the power would be made known. And so, we see, after he dies, after everybody scatters, everybody living in fear, that he's raised again. And you would think, at this point, people would say, oh, now I'm really excited, I want to go out and tell everybody. And he even says, in the end of Matthew, uh, he comes and says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. At the end of Mark 16, he says, uh, he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. And in John chapter 20, again, Jesus says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And yet, the beginning of Acts, also written by Luke, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But wait, he said, just before that, just, but wait. Don't go telling people yet. You say, what else is there to wait for? We know the whole story now. 
I understand before the cross we had to wait because we didn't understand the cross thing. But now we understand the cross. We understand the power that was there. We understand the resurrection that has followed. We know the message. Now we can go tell everybody, right? He says, no, not yet. Still not yet. What else is there to wait for? And what there is to wait for is the power of the Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit, that's what they didn't have. They knew the information, but they were unable to communicate that message in ways that would be life-transforming because they would have still been operating on their own power, out of their own strength. And Jesus says, you cannot operate out of your own strength. You need to operate out of my strength. Everything I'm going to call you to do is going to be just like when I called uh, my disciples to feed 5,000 people with no food. And they couldn't do it, except through my strength. It's, just going, to, it's going to be just like when I called Peter out of the boat to walk on the water. And he couldn't do it on his own strength, but he could do it through mine. Everything we're asked to do, that when Jesus says, you know, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, that's one of the things that we're to be teaching, is to obey everything Jesus says. But every command Jesus gives is impossible to obey in the way he intends on our own strength. It can only happen through the power of his Holy Spirit. And so the more that we are looking to build up our own strengths, and the more we are looking to uh, to go out and just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and we're just going to try harder and do more, the more we're headed for disaster. Even if, even if we appear to be uh, having results in the short term. So what are we to do instead? To delight in weaknesses. To delight in insults and hardships and persecutions and in difficulties. Understanding that our own weaknesses are what, one, prevent us from becoming conceited and think we're doing anything of our own to boast about. And two... Because that's where we get to see Jesus work. That's where we get to see the Holy Spirit in our lives doing things that we would not have seen otherwise. Now, you may have noticed your bulletin cover this morning. Even so, I'm going to read out loud to you. So I think it's a good, helpful reminder for those of us who think, well, I'm just going to keep working at getting better until finally I'm the kind of person that God can use. So Jacob was a cheater. Peter had a temper. David had an affair. Noah got drunk. Jonah ran from God. Paul was a murderer. Gideon was insecure. Miriam was a gossip. Martha was a worrier. Thomas was a doubter. Sarah was impatient. Elijah was moody. Moses stuttered. Zacchaeus was short, Abraham was old, Lazarus was dead. But then with the quote at the bottom, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And you can look at each one of these people who had a really good excuse why God's not going to use me. I mean, look at what I've done. Look at the things that I've done. I am I am too weak. I'm not the right person for that kind of a job. And we all have those things in our lives. And we can all use them as excuses. 
to not carry forward the message of the good news. We could. Or, we could even hide from those things and pretend they're not there. Pretend that we don't have these weaknesses and that we are the right person for the job. And either one will get us nowhere. But the Bible is pretty clear about even the weaknesses of the saints. The Bible is pretty clear that even when you're looking at a man like David, the man after God's own heart, one of the greatest figures of all the Old Testament, the one who did it so much, so right. We had an exercise oh, several weeks ago um, on Wednesday night with the kids where we were looking at the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah, etc. You can look that one up later. And we compared the things he did throughout that story with just the list of the Ten Commandments. And let me tell you, this man after God's own heart had some weaknesses. <laughs> he had some broken places and there were lots of broken commandments. And the Bible doesn't cover those up. It doesn't say you need to be like this person who got it all right. That's what you need to do. Let's go ahead. Be open with your weaknesses because it's where when we're weak that we see how strong God is. Can you imagine after Peter had walked on the water with Jesus, if they you know get back in the boat and the other disciples are like, I didn't know you could do that. If Peter had been saying, oh, well, I've been practicing on weekends. We all went around. <laughs> There's no amount of practice that's going to make that happen. No amount of practice. It is all because of Jesus. And what Paul is saying, the reason he delights in difficulties and hardships and insults and persecutions is not because he enjoys them. He doesn't say, you know, I, I enjoy pain. That's great stuff. No, he doesn't like it. That's why he prays for it to go away. And yet the reason he delights in the midst of it is because when he sees a situation that is really hard and he knows he can't handle it, he thinks, well, this is where, this is where I'm going to get to see Jesus show up most clearly. Because I'm going to be out of the way and I'm going to get to see him most clearly. My grace, he says, is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. As we look at the coming days, this coming summer, may we look at our difficult days, at our painful moments. The weaknesses in our own lives that we really wish were not there. We look at them differently. And instead of beating ourselves up for them, and instead of trying to work so hard to cover them up and hide them from everybody, and we see those as an opportunity to experience God's grace in our lives. As Paul wrote earlier, we have this treasure, this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. So we said it's where the broken places are. The treasure shines through.
May our lives, even in their brokenness, be glorifying to God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.